This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Pierre Ferrari, President and CEO of Heifer International, which links communities and helps bring sustainable agriculture and commerce to areas with a long history of poverty. The goal of every Heifer project is to help families achieve self-reliance. Pierre was born in the Belgian Congo, known today as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He received his BA and master's degree in economics from the University of Cambridge and his MBA from Harvard Business School. Prior to joining Heifer, Pierre gained more than 40 years of nonprofit and business experience with companies including Coca-Cola, Care, and the Small Enterprise Assistance Fund. He is also a member of the board of directors of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream and the co-founder of Ethics Ventures, which serves as a gathering place for commerce that puts people and the environment before price. Pierre, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Robert. Happy to be here. You were born in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Were you raised there as well? I was. Uh, I was born in a little town, a mining town called Lubumbashi today. It was called Elizabethville then. And uh, I was raised there for about 11 years. Uh, and then, unfortunately, after the independence of the Congo in 1960, the army mutinied and some people will remember Lumumba and Kasavubu and Chombe and the UN and uh, Doug Amersfoort and a whole bunch of stories and histories around the Cold War that was uh, being battled out, as you probably know. With uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Cold War was fought on the boundaries uh, of countries like Nicaragua, the Congo, etc. So anyway, um, we had to escape, and uh, we ended up in Kenya which went through some of this, but in a very limited way. And, uh, and then I left, the car. I, we, I left uh, Kenya to go to England to get my education. And, and then onto the land of uh, the brave and the free, the United States for opportunity. <laughs> Indeed. And these experiences that you just described, um, did they help to inspire your commitment to ending hunger and poverty, uh, both locally and throughout the world? Yeah. This, you know, you, um, I had uh, I had a wonderful grandmother, and she, um, through her Catholic faith, was very committed to working with um, with the Congolese, and so she brought us up to think very much about them and participate in their development. And she had a small vegetable business, uh, wholesale and retail business, and I, I remember very clearly going to the villages, the three villages that she was working with through the local Catholic diocese. Uh, to get the vegetables that she needed for her business, and uh, you know, it just it just made a huge impression. And when you when you are living there, you realize how difficult life is for um, you know the Congolese or the Kenyans or, or the local Africans. The uh, conditions are extremely difficult. It looks, you know, it always looks uh, sort of kind of romantic and and kind of cute with uh, the mud walls and the thatch roofs. But the uh, hygiene and the sanitary conditions are just terrible. The disease rates are high. The malnutrition levels are awful. And you, it doesn't take long before you realize all of these things. And 
and it remains with you. You know, it's obviously a formative experience, and uh, no question that it affects <coughs> it affects me today. You know, no question about it. Sure. And uh, what made you different uh, as far as being able actually to go to the United States and pursue your education, as opposed to so many other people who may have wanted to but just didn't have the opportunity or the means. Oh, that's a crazy question. I guess I'm just driven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would you like to expand on that a bit? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I ended up in England, and I got uh, my high school education. I got my first degrees there, and but I didn't feel at home, and uh, we weren't we weren't really able to go back to to Africa. So I said, well, I'll just start anew, and uh, decided to go to the United States and. Um, I, you know, was smart enough and hardworking enough to get in and, and get, get into Harvard Business School. And from there, uh, the opportunities are huge, as you can imagine. Um, you know, all sorts of employers are looking for you, and they make the the passage into green card, getting the right visas, and all of those components of essentially immigrating make it you know make it very very easy. I would I went to an, joined Coca-Cola at the time, and um, my first job actually had been at Coca-Cola being a truck driver in Belgium. I uh, drove a truck there and delivering product, and uh, I had made some contacts at Coke, and they had known that I was going to Harvard Business School, and they said, well, when you're about to graduate, let us know, um, and I did, and they said, okay, we've got a job for you. Come on over, and I went to Atlanta, and uh, I've been here since then, since 1976. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Also, the fact that you drove a, a truck for them uh, before uh, completing your education must have been a great experience, uh, just being uh, on the street each day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know what? We paid on commission. The, so I, I, it was a summer job, and that was my very first job, my first paid job. And we went, um, I, had, uh, I had an inner city route. And I had to, this is back in the 70s, and I had to do my own forecasting and, uh, you know, con configure my truck the correctly so I could maximize my sales and do two or three trips so I could maximize revenues, my income. It was a hell of a learning experience. And frankly, I don't think, um, as simple as that sounds, it's probably all of the tools that you need to run a successful business. You know, who are your clients? What are they going to buy? You know, how can you maximize the productivity of your assets? It's all the same stuff. Sure, and and there's an element also of urgency about doing it day by day and and yeah. having to live on commissions too, right? Absolutely. You, you know, got there the got there the factory at six o'clock in the morning, and they closed shop at seven at night. And you, how can can you make three trips today? Now, if you're really efficient about how to load the truck up, you can make three trips and make some money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and did you always know that you wanted to ultimately work with nonprofit organizations, or did you realize that after <coughs> working for Coke and in the non in the for-profit well, sector? I, I did. I wanted to do this uh, development work. Um, a lot of the economics work that I had studied at uh, at Cambridge was actually around development. Uh, Marcia Sen and a couple of other economists were uh, were sort of inspirations on that, as well as my experience back in Africa. Uh, but I found I, I'd, I'd approached the World Bank uh, back in 1975, and it was a very difficult experience. I didn't find them committed to the mission the way I was expecting. So I sort of stepped back and said, you know, 
if that's the way they approach development, I'm not that interested. I, I think I'll just go find a job. And uh, so I was disappointed by that. But while I was working, while I you know worked for Coke and others, uh, I spent a fair amount of time with some people in uh, in Kenya um, doing some, basically raising money for them. It was more philanthropic than and then then any action so i was able to raise money a little bit of money for this uh for this organization called majan Missouri, which has uh, about a two well maybe today it's got a three million dollar budget supporting um mostly education for children they have a, a home for this uh, disabled kids who still in africa are considered to be cursed in some way and therefore are often rejected and thrown out of the home and they're able to find the kids and, and raise them in essentially uh, orphanages. So anyway, it, uh, I, I was busy working, building my business career. At the same time, I was able to be philanthropic directly with a particular operation in, in Nairobi, Nairobi, Kenya. So, And what differences uh, did you find and do you find between your time with for-profits and non-profits? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> culturally, they are different, and I think they need to be. Um, businesses are, you know, very much informed by values of the market, which tend to be relatively brutal and demanding, and and quarter by quarter, quarter by quarter, all of those urgent and immediate requirements. And nonprofits have to balance uh, the demands and the the values of the market with uh, the morality of the work that's got to be done. That does not excuse nonprofit to be non-performing, inefficient, not effective. In fact, I think the moral requirement to be effective is even higher uh, because of this uh, exceptional mission that they have. But at the same time, the balance constantly has to be has to be thought about, has to be considered, and that's very difficult and it's quite different. So, you know, the the market reasoning is incomplete in nonprofit. It's got to be always, always merged and, and integrated with the moral reasoning. And I find that really exciting and, and, and hard work. Um, so that's one of the differences, one of the major differences. And I think a lot of tools that are applicable in business are applicable in nonprofits. Uh, I don't buy at all uh, the, the refrain that you hear from business people that nonprofits ought to be run like businesses. <laughs> They, they cannot be run like businesses. They are very different. Uh, and, the, and the dog bark right when you said they should not be run like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My dog is. I don't know what's. Yeah. Anyway. It's. Uh, <laughs> hang on. I'll, I this case. He'll bark a couple of times. That's, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. So anyway, that's that moral reasoning and the market reasoning, <laughs> I think, are some things that have to be balanced very carefully in nonprofit. And I find that very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you have a global perspective, which is so key in looking at the issues that you address, isn't it? Yeah, I find my, yes. Uh, you know, the I think that's one of the advantages of having been raised in Africa is that uh, you understand the cultural differences and the subtleties that exist between different ethnic groups and tribal groups and countries and and all the subtleties that come with that. I mean, it just you you think. It's easy to think in those ways. It really doesn't matter whether you're in, in India or in Kenya or in Guatemala. The, this, this, this rapport between different tribes and ethnic groups is, is something that's, uh, that I grew up with, so I'm, I'm sensitive to it. Yeah. Which languages do you speak? 
I speak English, obviously, and I speak French, uh, quite a bit of Swahili, and uh, I, I understand Spanish reasonably well. Yeah. And um, certainly uh, in business and in the nonprofit, leading a, a major nonprofit organization, uh, the ability and the desire to speak another language would seem not only key, um, but also looking beyond ourselves. Why, why is it then relatively unusual for heads of organizations to speak two or three languages when the benefits are so clear? Yeah, the benefits are clear. Um, I think it's perhaps, and people, your, your listeners may object to this, I think a lot of Americans are not exposed to different languages. There's no need. You know, the country is so big that you can function uh, very well in all sorts of industries and activities without speaking another language. Uh, that's not true of Europeans. I just came back from Germany and I was stunned, uh, once again stunned by the, you know, every German seemed to speak you know, flawless English plus French. <laughs> um, and it's true of the Dutch and, the, you know, the Scandinavians and the Swiss. I just think that um, Europeans are perhaps oriented to trade and to do to do good business worldwide. You have to speak languages. You have to speak the language of your clients. That's not so true of Americans. It just isn't that important. Well, America, of course, is the center of the universe, isn't it? I, that's what that's what you've been told. <laughs> yes. Nous pouvons discuter des choses en français, bien sûr. Uh, well, how did you come to co-found Ethics Ventures, and, and what sort of work do you do there? Uh, <clears throat> so this interesting. So the background story is that I was running uh, a small venture fund called uh, Hot Fudge, and we had decided to invest in an organization called Sweatex, which was an opportunity to actually sew, cut and sew uh, simple clothing that were made in the United States in uh, almost perfect conditions for the workers. Uh, the workers were going to be unionized, it was going to be a co-op, they were going to be paid a fair uh, living wage, they were going to be provided health care, uh, they were going to have a share in the, in the, in the organization, etc., etc. It was uh, uh, an organizational structure that was very worker-oriented, and we succeeded for quite a while, and then we hit a, a very serious bump. We had a major client order several million dollars worth of goods, we actually cut the goods, et cetera, et cetera. We had been guaranteed by a supplier of cloth that uh, the cloth would not shrink. This is common practice in, in the clothing business. And uh, lo and behold, when we had shipped the goods to the client, uh, six weeks later, the complaints started coming in that the goods we had made shrank uh, over 10%, 10 to 15%, which uh, led to you know, a demand for their money back and basically that bankrupt, bankrupted us. From that bankrupt, we decided that we still had a good idea in terms of supplying goods that were produced ethically. And so instead of doing the manufacturing ourselves, we set up the non-profit, the, the for-profit uh, internet-based business that it is. And today, uh, Ethics Ventures is providing uh, ethically produced goods, goods made in the USA, all of the components that we had thought about before without taking the risk of manufacture with basically our trading, printing, etc. So if you want t-shirts um, or, or ashtrays that are produced ethically, I don't know if that's possible, um, or pens, etc., etc., uh, we can do that. Um, so a group of us 
from the uh, SweatX days, got together, we raised some funds, and we started that business. And today, you can go to the Ethics Ventures website, and you can buy as many T-shirts as you would like, and uh, as well as sweatshirts and all the chatskas that you need for your promotional needs or your event. And as unpleasant as the bankruptcy must have been, it was probably ultimately a positive experience, wasn't it? It was painful. <laughs> uh, one learns from failures. One doesn't learn from successes. Um, which, which ultimately, when you think about it, it, it would be reasonable to call it a, an ultimately positive experience, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so <clears throat> that, that was, uh, that was as, as you said, it was painful. We, we, you know, we escaped, we survived, and we launched this other business, and uh, everything, everything is okay today. You know? uh, yeah. And what was your experience like uh, founding your own socially responsible business? Um, yeah, so the first mistake... And the biggest learning experience is to put the social mission ahead of the need of the customer. There is this, I learned this, it took me a few months, but we all learned this, that putting the mission and all of the ethics ahead of the very basic need of producing goods that are um, of the quality required at the price that's competitive uh, all of the business needs of the client uh, need to be met and you have to be ethical. As opposed to saying, well, look at me, I'm doing this ethically. Of course you're going to love my product. It doesn't work that way. And that order of importance and the criteria by which clients buy either your service or your product is absolutely a mandate. And... Uh, a lot of folks who get into social enterprise, you know, who really believe, my God, I'm doing and I'm changing the world. Of course, they're going to come to my door and buy everything I have. If you don't meet their taste requirements or quality requirements or delivery requirements, et cetera, et cetera, color, whatever it is, you will not sell. <laughs> and, and this is surely a core piece of advice for young people seeking to ultimately found their own nonprofits or, or social ventures. Uh, are there other aspects um, of advice that come to mind that you'd like to convey to young people? Yeah, I think <clears throat> so in terms of social enterprise, yeah. uh, the basic, one, and one other mistake that I've noticed with a lot of entrepreneurs in the social space is that um, they don't put enough weight on, or they don't hire salespeople. There is this reticence uh, or this belief that salesmanship, the ability to convince someone to buy your goods, is somehow a little below them, a little bit um, uh, incoherent or inconsistent with the social mission of the particular enterprise. And I would urge every one of them to think that it is a vital first investment to make is to, if you're not a good salesman yourself, you better, or woman, you better go hire sales skills as rapidly as possible. That is the one investment you must make which uh, would appear to be absolutely key just across the board, no matter what enterprise you're involved in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in thinking about companies uh, like Ben & Jerry's uh, with a strong corporate social responsibility profile, uh, what is your role as a member of the board of directors of Ben & Jerry's entail? 
So the company, I was on the board of directors for the company that was publicly traded on NASDAQ back in the 90s, or 80s and 90s. Uh, so the board of directors at the time on which I sat uh, found itself in situations where we essentially had to sell the company. Um, it was, again, a very painful experience for Ben and Jerry and the board, but the situation was such that uh, we really had no option. When we negotiated the sale ultimately to Unilever, we were able to negotiate a sales agreement that included the continuation of a board with responsibility for the social mission as well as product quality and some um, responsibility for the financial uh, results of the, of, of the business. So even though Unilever owned 100% of the stock, it still had by contract, by sales agreement, to respect and um, follow the direction of the board regarding particularly product quality and social mission um, coherence and, and action. So our role is to understand, obviously, the sales agreement and the limits of our authority, but also take full advantage of those of that particular authority and, and, and responsibility and make sure that you don't even follow it. And that's what we do. We pay you know, careful attention. We're able to make sure that the budgets and the activities are oriented and are coherent with the sales agreement, which has a, which, by the way, is publicly available on the on the web. You can go find it uh, quite easily. There's a full description of it. There's actually a conversation um, by the lawyers that had drafted the, the the agreement. And for those of you who are interested in exit strategies from the social mission or social driven organization uh, post uh, you know the entrepreneurial stage if you if you sell to a large organization or a larger organization the sales agreement approach is one that you might want to consider um, it it allows the buyer to have a substantial amount of control which they of course should have given the fact that they bought it but it provides the right kind, in our opinion, it provides the right kind of mechanisms and uh, oversight to be sure that social mission components are maintained, enhanced, and, uh, and, and allowed to flower. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Pierre Ferrari, President and CEO of Heifer International. And beyond the contract itself, uh, did and, and does Unilever uh, fully support and embrace the, uh, the points of the contract? 
I would say that on, at the beginning, it was complicated for their upper middle management. The senior management, the CEO at the time, and uh, the top leadership at Unilever understood very well that if they did not put a mechanism like this in place, it was very likely that the culture of Unilever would grind something like Ben & Jerry down to, uh, you know, to a non-existent brand or to a brand that didn't live up to the social mission that it had built. They understood that the product sold well partly because of that, not exclusively because of that. The product is good, et cetera, per the earlier part of our conversation. Um, so the, the new managers that came in to run the business, I think were very perplexed by it. You know, this is, we bought this thing, we can do whatever we want. And so there was some tension at the beginning. There's no question about it. But slowly but surely, with the action of the board uh, and the uh, the resolution of some of the conflicts in favor of the social mission and the product quality led to success for the business. And uh, so they were surprised because a lot of corporate managers basically cut costs and find, you know, essentially their, their approach is to find longer margins for everything that they do. And we prevented them from doing that and kept investing in the social mission, which is both a social good as well as something that the market wanted and needed and, and was prepared to pay for. So, slow. The, the culture within Unilever, that the, the, the management or the oversight by Unilever of the business began to understand the, the subtleties of social mission-driven businesses and the value to consumers. And now you had this win-win situation where by providing the right resources to support the social mission, the product quality, and integrating it with the business actually works. And the business is doing very, very well. And companies more and more these days, aren't they uh, just that much more aware of the social responsibility aspect, which then can indeed drive sales, etc., just the way you described? Yeah, I think they are. Um, there's certainly a lot of talk. Um, you know, I think it's whenever you see that kind of situation in the marketplace, it's worth asking, well, exactly what are you doing at what scale and is the scale of your activity in the social sphere or ecological sphere actually proportional to the size of the business because often there's uh, you know the green washing and the blue washing and all of the washing that gone essentially what all these things mean is that very little is done but a substantial amount of promotion is put behind it with Ben and Jerry's a substantial amount of activity is actually done as well as promotion as well as, you know, essentially stating what it is that we're doing. I think that's the right approach. It's that we are trying to reduce, you know, we are carbon neutral and we tell people we're carbon neutral and we're trying to figure out a way to reduce our carbon emission as rapidly as possible. Uh, or we are, you know, working very diligently to make sure that our value chain, uh, supply chain of cocoa and vanilla and, and coffee, et cetera, et cetera, is, is purchased in, uh, in you know, uh, in good conditions, in good situations, in uh, in ethical ways, we call it value-led supply systems. Uh, so we, we're walking the talk. I mean, we're really walking the talk at scale. That's the difference. And uh, and I think people understand that we are. For example, we we believe at Ben and Jerry's that GMO is a problem. So we decided about three years ago to go non-GMO. 
And it's complicated to do, and we did it. We are a non-GMO brand now. And uh, it took an enormous amount of work to develop the systems um, and the, the supply systems and finding the suppliers who could guarantee that uh, all of the products they supply us uh, are indeed GMO-free. That's walking the talk. Sure. And it would also seem that all of these experiences that you just described on the board of Ben & Jerry's uh, directly help you uh, to this day with Heifer International. Would that be oh, fair I to say? Absolutely. Whenever I'm in conversation with, you know, whether it be Nestle or Unilever, which is the, you know, obviously the other side, or, or Starbucks or you name it, um, the fact that I've seen and understand the operational aspect of what we believe is the right thing to do towards smallholder farmers, uh, the business people in the room listen. Because they say, this nonprofit guy, understand what he's talking about. Well, and also decades of work with Coca-Cola gives me some credibility, as you can imagine. Of course, of <laughs> course. And, and how did you have, happen to become involved with Heifer International? Um, so my daughters uh, who were in Montessori school uh, were involved with a program raising funds for Heifer. That was my first interaction. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I just, we just, uh, it's a read to feed program and they read a lot of books and you sponsor, you know, so, certain amount of money per book read and, you know, inevitably parents get, <laughs> uh, you shell out 20, 30, 40, $50 for, and, you know, it's encouraging to, it's obviously a good thing to encourage your kids to read. I'm not sure that money is the right way to do it, but it is, it is part of the program. Um, and then uh, I was working on this venture fund and some other things, and a very good friend of mine knew about the job opening as for the CEO and said, she said to me, this is your job. She looked at me and said, this is your job. You would love doing this. And uh, so I went online, I applied, and lo and behold, I got it. <laughs> That's a great story. And, and for our listeners, what are the organization's major goals? Well, we have, we have determined a single powerful transformational goal, which is to end poverty, and I'll explain what we mean by end poverty, to take four million families, to take four million families out of poverty by 2020. And by out of poverty, uh, I mean, or we mean to take families to a, above a certain clear line we call a living income. So it's not about improving the situation, alleviating poverty, reducing this. Uh, we're avoiding what we're internally calling the weasel words. It is about a very bright line in particular areas where we work, where it's, uh, whether it's in Huehuetenango in, in Guatemala or the Chetuan district in Nepal, there is a certain living income for a family and we want to take every one of our participants above that line within a span of, say, three to five years. That is really hard to do. It's easy to get a 20% increase in income. Most of these families end up or are, as a baseline income, maybe a quarter to a fifth of where they need to be. And improving their income by 20% still leaves them in dire poverty. So we've said no. We need to end poverty for those communities where we work. And the core of Heifer's model is passing on the gift. How does this work? 
The passing on the gift is an important component to the 12 cornerstone training that we provide. Most communities that we approach and who are willing to participate in our program start off with a psychosocial situation of pretty desperate psychological depression. It's not very, it's not very often spoken about, but poverty, at least in the, in the countries in which we work, is more of a psychological state than just an economic state or you know a physical state. They are multi-generational poor. They are fatalistic about their status and they've essentially given up. Uh, they do the bare necessities to keep living, potentially nourishing their kids. There is a level of depression that would be easily defined here as clinical. So the first thing one has to do before we begin to do any kind of technical training is to provide them with an opportunity of realizing that they do have a set of assets and opportunities that give them hope. So that first phase in our project is always about creating hope at the family level, the community level, so that they can begin to take on autonomously the work that needs to be done to take them out of poverty. Yes, we also provide animals, we provide the necessary technical tools so that they can raise the animals effectively, safely, humanely, uh, which then leads to income generation, better nutrition, uh, better ecological practice, etc. But at the very core of our model is this 12 cornerstone training that leads to a sense of hope. And once you've ignited that sense of hope, then you can begin to move forward. The final step, in a sense, of that journey towards hope is the fact that they have succeeded in receiving an animal, training an animal well, keeping it alive, feeding it well, and then with the first female offspring, with the first female offspring providing that female offspring to another community member. And that turns them from being a recipient, which at some level for everyone is a little bit shaming. It, they, they really, most people really don't like to receive something out of charity. They would prefer to be autonomous. They prefer to be self-reliant. But if you're in such dire situation, you do, you do take uh, the gift. And by turning the gift around and actually being a giver, a donor suddenly, and helping your neighbor, that completes a transformation into a hopeful state, which then leads them to, you know, further gains in income and and uh, and other other advantages. That's the power of the passing on the gift. And you also train families in sustainable agricultural practices, which would seem to transcend the the charity aspect and actually give them the means to do it themselves right absolutely yeah and absolutely all those tools that we we do that the animals the training uh, uh but the foundation is this belief that they actually can do it it can be done that they have the hope and the the self that that they you know it's an internal change it's every change begins from the inside right whether it's whether it's a 12-step program or escaping from any kind of disease, if you have a power, an internal power, then I think you can. the probabilities of success are much higher. And where does Heifer work? 
We work in about 26 countries, including the U.S. We work in, uh, in Arkansas, which is our home state, uh, in the Delta there. Then we work in Mexico, Central America, uh, in Ecuador and Peru and Bolivia and South America. And then Africa, we work mostly on East Africa, but we also work in Senegal and Ghana. And then in Asia, we work in Nepal, India, uh, Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam. We work in China. We work primarily with, not primarily, we work exclusively with the indigenous groups within China, not the Han group. Every other, I think there's 23 identified indigenous groups, Tibetans, etc. And then we also work in Vietnam and the Philippines. All most to do with agriculture and often, very often to do with uh, obviously livestock. And so what you described, obviously, a huge range of cultures. So how do you adapt your approach for different people and places? Yeah, so the mechanism, the 12 Cornerstone Program, includes um, a whole community-driven process that determines what it is in the context of what we've, we can offer. And we don't go into a community and say, oh, you're going to do cows. Or we, or we don't go there and say, oh, chickens is perfect for you. We go in there, and through the 12 Cornerstone Training, especially the the social mission, the social mission component, uh, or social capital component, they determine for themselves what it is they would like to do. What capacities do they feel they have to manage either something complicated like dairy, or something more simple like just straight agriculture, or perhaps uh, honey, or uh, fish, or whatever it is that they feel appropriate given their conditions, given the assets that they have. And um, so culturally, and Culturally, it's set by the communities. One of the things we do do for the communities is we are very, very careful to analyze the demand for the product that they are thinking about producing. There is no point in having higher productivity and producing a surplus of something that will not sell. That's, I know that's obvious to us and you and me, but in the development field, it's not so obvious apparently. And giving the uh, the training directly and seeking their input would seem to make these people a whole lot more receptive to your assistance and to your training, right? It makes them more receptive because it's essentially their idea. Sure. Uh, and it you know it's 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 also needs to be simply said that a lot of the communities where we work, animals, livestock is considered to be a very important component. It uh, provides more than just an opportunity for com commerce. Uh, you know, obviously chickens provide nutrition with eggs and dairy cows produce nutrition with milk, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but are also animals are seen as um, an opportunity for them to save so that they have resources and assets if something happens to their family like a health crisis. Uh, and many animals are able to provide power that's required to either transport good or do the plowing, et cetera. So there's, there's the very poorest level in... Uh, rural areas and agricultural situations, animals are seen as particularly valuable. And what what sort of partnerships do you have? Uh, how do they work? Um, so we have two forms, two basic forms of partnership. On the donor side, uh, aside from individual donors, you know, somebody buying a goat or a cow or chickens or whatever, um, we have partnerships with companies like Elanco, which is an animal health company, um, a variety of Starbucks is a partner, providing funds to 
do the work that we do in particular areas. Starbucks supports us in Tanzania with their coffee farmers who need additional income to actually take them out of poverty. Our, our program will provide diversification for these coffee farmers to take them out of poverty. So that's one level of partnership where uh, it's very philanthropic in nature, but it's oriented towards some of the goals of the company uh, or the corporation will have. We have partnerships or relationships with foundations such as Gates and some other people who provide, essentially provide us with the funds that are required to do the work that we do. On the ground, uh, in the field, we have a very extensive network of project partners, we essentially train the trainers. So all of our techniques in terms of social capital building, animal livestock management, um, a variety of techniques in terms of how to manage uh, the community, to manage strategic planning, assets, etc., are all provided to train trainers who then go into the field alongside with us to do the training. So we're able to leverage uh, very rapidly, uh, the knowledge that we have and spread it across local nonprofits who will then go to the field and who obviously are very close to the culture, the language, the dialects, all of the things that need to be done. So that's that relationship, those relationships are very important to us because it allows us to extend our reach dramatically. And also increases the feedback and the knowledge for you to be able to pursue projects in the future. Absolutely. And, and you know, we, we really believe in our model. And I think by teaching uh, a large number of locals on how we approach it, they can get their own funds to do the same kind of work and spread the good news. You know? Sure. And you mentioned uh, working with donors. So how has your experience been with fundraising? Uh, well, I'm a natural salesman, so I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and speaking like a true Coca-Cola truck driver, right? Exactly. Yes. I love, you know, and I think we offer an incredible opportunity for people to satisfy their philanthropic impulses and needs. And I love talking about what we do. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy as a pig in, you know, the proverbial, you know what, uh, talking about what I do and, and trying to raise money. So it's not, not an issue for me at all. Understood, which is uh, which is great to hear, and that comes through obviously clearly in your voice. So, uh, tell our listeners uh, what the future holds for for Heifer. What would you ideally like to see happen? Yeah, so um, I, I think this tremendous amount of hope. Uh, we were at Google recently. We we had been very kindly invited by some of the Google executives to come and meet with some of them. And they could they could describe some of the incredible technologies and new ideas that they have. Um, so aside from that particular visit, um, there's clearly a huge opportunity to utilize the new communication, broadband access, uh, a whole range of not only digital technologies but also physical technologies such as uh, solar power and wind power and micro hydroelectric. The one of the major challenges and restraints and contributors to continuing poverty is power poverty. It's not just money. It's literally, you know, the the kids can't study at night because there's no light or it's very expensive, uh, or they simply don't have the electricity with which to drive pumps to do irrigation, which has a dramatic impact on on land productivity if you can manage. Um, uh, irrigation correctly, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those two aspects, the digital uh, revolution that is now beginning to reach the poor and the power revolution, which I think is really coming at an incredible pace, will change 
much of what we do. And so how do we adapt? How do we bring in these technologies and marry them you know, well with all of the work that we do in, in the ag field? I'm super excited about that. I think um, I have tremendous opportunities to deliver these things in the correct, at the correct scale with the correct um, um, deployment. And part of that deployment requires capital. It's not just donations, but uh, this whole field of impact investing is now something of great interest to us. And we need to find donors as well as investors and marry the two together so that we can deploy huge, a huge amount of capital that we require that will, I think, catapult a lot of these communities out of the dark ages, literally the dark ages. And uh, so that's what the future holds for us and for our, our communities very rapidly. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I think there's a real, an increasingly um, subtle understanding that capital, and I don't mean just to buy solar panels or pumps, but working capital to ensure that farmers have the right, uh, sufficiently capitalized to do the work that they need to do to buy the right inputs, uh, including things like storage, irrigation equipment, uh, harvesting, uh, hired labor to harvest. There's a whole range of activities that require working capital that is simply not available right now. So we're getting into that field, how to provide working capital to support the excellent work that they're doing, which, they, which farmers can't grow or take full advantage of unless they have that working capital. It's, it's a common problem, you know, I mean, remember during the 2008 uh, recession, I mean, suddenly, here, the Great Recession, suddenly there was no capital and small businesses were simply strangled. Sure. And uh, that's true for smallholder farmers and all of the enterprises associated with that. And it's so easy for, for all of us in America to take uh, for granted light and electricity, isn't it? Oh, and water. And yeah, and and water. Let and let water. alone let alone the capital that we have to just go into the store and get uh, potato salad. <laughs> it's, it's incomprehensible yeah. to North Americans to say no. There's no water. I mean, when we take donors to some of these communities, these very remote communities, you know, everybody's wandering around with flashlights. You know, yes. <laughs> that's it. That's all we got. Yeah, and and hopefully when donors find out uh, about the specific needs with light, electricity, capital, water. Uh, it gets them charged up oh, and uh, and makes them engaged, which obviously uh, benefits everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, from an, that engagement, uh, Pierre, we thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Robert, thank you very much. I enjoyed it, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> the best way to reach Pierre and to support Heifer International is through heifer.org, which is H-E-I-F-E-R dot O-R-G. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.